is Duran Ornstein from bestsaxophonewebsiteever.com, bringing you what I hope to be the best saxophone podcast ever. Here's where I meet with super brilliant folks from the saxophone world who will be sharing their insights, tips, tricks, and whatnot with you to inspire you to improve your craft and have a great time doing it. All right, hello everyone. Welcome to Best Saxophone Podcast Ever, and today I have with me Jeff Driscoll, who is a saxophone and woodwind player working as a first-call studio musician in Los Angeles. He's played on a multitude of soundtracks, including Toy Story 3, and has also worked with composers including John Williams. In the world of popular music, Jeff's played with luminaries such as Prince, Alan Jackson, Michael Feinstein, Annie Lennox, Michael Bolton, Josh Groban, Steve Tyrell, and Fiona Apple, just to name a few. He's also recorded with some of the giants of modern jazz, including Eddie Daniels, Arturo Sandoval, Take Six, Patty Austin, Claire Fisher, Diane Reeves, and Hubert Laws. And he's also a major player in the world of modern big bands, as he can be found playing both live and on recordings with bands such as Gordon Goodwin's Big Fat Band, the Bob Florence Limited Edition, the Chris Walden Big Band, and the John Diversa Progressive Big Band. So with all that said, welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Dorn. It's good to be here, man. Appreciate you asking me to do this. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, normally the way I like to start off is, um, well, first off, um, you've heard it in my words, so... Basically, uh, do you want to tell us in your own words a little bit more about what it is that you're doing these days? Sure. Uh, well, I, you know, just trying to piece together a, a, a thing here, I guess. Um, you know, um, how am I doing so far, Torn? <laughs> doing awesome. I, I totally um, hear what you're saying. Let's see. Um, it's funny, you know, now that I'm going to say it, I'm not even sure exactly what to say about what I do, but, you know, I, I, um, been doing, you know, I, I, uh, I do a lot of Broadway musicals. That's probably the biggest, uh, source of income that I have right now. It's sort of worked out that way and, uh, doing the big bands and then some, some session calls for different things. And, uh, writing, doing a certain amount of writing right now, and um, all those things seem to my daily in and out of playing saxophone. Uh-huh. Okay, very cool. Uh, do you mind telling us how you got involved in music, in the, you know, as a, as a youngster coming up? No, not at all. My, um, it's funny, you know, I've thought about that a lot over the years, and uh, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that my mom was an amateur pianist, and she played a lot, and I'd hear her play every day, I didn't really, I think as a kid, you don't think about that very much, <clears throat> Just it's just part of your life, because it's always there, and, you know, she was a good player, practiced, you know, pretty regularly, so I got to hear that, and what that was like, and then, about the, I think in the third grade, was it the third? Yeah, the third or the fourth. It must have been the third grade. The junior high band came over and played for our, our school. And I can remember it really vividly. I remember hearing the band playing and thinking, wow, I want to do that. Uh-huh. Just something about the idea that these people were all getting together and doing this thing together and working on it. And it sounded so great, which is, of course, incredibly ironic because 
imagine what that band must have sounded like, you know. Yeah. It was a junior high band. It was probably a pretty good one, but it was still a junior high band. Oh, but yeah. it inspired me, and I thought, I want to do that. I want to be part of that experience. There was something about it that was really appealing to me about playing a horn or a, an instrument and being part of an ensemble. So that really got me going on it. And unfortunately, the only thing I could start on was the violin going into the fourth grade. You had to wait another year. And I, was, I didn't want to wait, so I started playing the violin, and I was horrible. I mean, seriously, horrible. And uh, never quite put together the whole thing about practicing and what needed to happen. So I, uh, somewhere in there, started hearing some jazz and got exposed to that. And there was a big band that, even at the junior high, there was, they called it the stage band. <clears throat> and I remember hearing them play and just thinking, no, nah, that's, that's the real deal. And uh, so that got me interested in the saxophone. And I started, once I had a saxophone, I, uh, you, I, I practicing was never an issue. I just always, I practiced incessantly, I think, as a, even as a, even in the junior high. But by the time I got to high school, I was much more pointed about it. I had a, I had a plan and a good teacher and, I was working hard on it by that point, so. Like, how many hours a day were you practicing in junior high, out of curiosity? You know what's funny about it, too, Doran, is I don't think I thought about it in junior high as practicing. I just wanted to play my horn. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? So, yeah. it wasn't until later that I kind of figured out, oh, you actually need to practice stuff and do things. So, I would just get it out and just fool around with it for yeah. hours and hours. But I don't think I was... It, it, it was different than the way it was even in high school where I became more focused on really trying to improve my playing. It was more just like screwing around, which was great, you know? Uh-huh. So. so I don't know how long it was, but it, it wasn't consistent or anything like that. It was just something I liked doing, so I'd pull the horn out and start messing around. And then fast forward to, you know... I guess you went to uh, University of North Texas, which is one of the best jazz schools ever in the history of jazz schools. And after that, uh, from our earlier conversation, you said you went into um, a few other fields before devoting yourself to music full-time. And I find that really interesting because the cliche you always hear is if, there's, if you have any doubts about whether or not you want to be a musician, forget about it. You're, you, the only way to be a musician is to have no other interests, no other, no doubts. So can you tell us a little bit about how you went from some non-music jobs to getting back into music full-time? Yeah. You know, I knew you were going to, I knew you wanted to talk about that, and I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, because I think that whole thing is sort of a philosophical question. I mean, as I started to think about it, because I've, I've heard people say that a lot, that the only reason you should pursue music is because is if there's nothing else, if you absolutely have to do it. And I find that to be sort of an odd way of looking at it. I mean, I think if, if you step back from it a little bit, it seems a little strange. Like if somebody said that, like, the only way you should ever be an astronaut is if you absolutely have to do it, you'd go, like, what? It doesn't even make any sense. Like, you do that because that's your passion. That's what you want to do, you know? Um, and I think the same thing's true with music. If that's what you want to do, then, then you should do it and, uh, and you should pursue it. For me, when I was at school, I was going through some stuff in my life personally and 
had issues with school in general. <laughs> and uh, so I think there were a lot of factors that led me to drop out and try some other things. And, uh, and it's something that, I'm, that I think I needed to do on my own sounds trite, but my life path or whatever was to, to go out and check out some other things and see what that was like. And then, um, it let me come back to music with a fresh look at it. So I didn't feel, uh, I, I think going out and doing those other things gave me the opportunity to see that every job had some element about it that you didn't like. That's why that people, you know, it's why it's work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it wasn't, if it didn't have something like that, then it wouldn't be work. You'd just be doing, you know, you'd be having fun. So it made me, um, it made me realize that it was silly to think that there was something else that was going to be, um, that it was somehow going to be easier or better to do something else. Those other things that I did, they, uh, they had their, their shortcomings too. Does that, does that, you know where I'm, is this yeah. answering the question? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's um, a very unique but uh, sensible philosophy that you have. Yeah, I seem to have a lot of those unique. I, I don't know. I think it's. I'm trying to decide. It. it you know, I'm, I'm over forty now, and I, I think it, it, it's possible that I'm becoming a curmudgeon. <laughs> I don't but think I, so. No, I hope not. I, I, but I do. I think I. It, I hear people say that, that particularly about music, like you know, that that you shouldn't do it and. Uh, and it, honestly, it is probably harder than it ever has been to do what I'm doing anyway, to try and make your, make a living as a, a sideman, basically. And I think I'd encourage people that are young to really think twice about whether that's a great idea, especially as a saxophonist. Um, it, it, it become, it's become pretty, it's, it's hard. Not, I mean, not just as a saxophonist, but I think any... Short, yeah, it, it, probably any instrumentalist. It really is. I mean, even when you look at what's going on with orchestras right now, those people are really having a hard time. And so, I think you have to have a sort of creative. You have to take a look and see what other possibilities there are. But that being said, I also know. I mean, I know literally thousands of people that are making their living as musicians. So. <laughs> It's certainly, uh, it, <laughs> I was thinking about this whole astronaut thing. I don't know. I was really thinking about this a lot because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's easier than being an astronaut, but it probably doesn't pay as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I know we've spoken earlier and you've talked about, um, you know, everyone knows about the woodwind doubles, but you were also talking about doubles such as composition and piano playing. Um, are those things that you do as well? Yeah, I've done a certain amount of writing um, that has supplemented my in income as a player. Um, and at times I thought that I wanted to pursue that and thought I didn't want to pursue that. But, you know, I was thinking about that whole thing with the doubling, too, and all that. And, you know, it comes down to a question of whether it's something you, you want to do. And if you want to... What happened to me was I didn't, I didn't particularly care for the clarinet. You know, everybody has that double that this. They don't. They're not really that into. And I came to town, and I was getting on a few jobs, and I got on a job, and I had to play the clarinet, and I wasn't making it. You know, and it was certainly obvious to me that I wasn't making it. And I thought, well, 
okay, so what am I going to do now? Am I going to make sure that I don't get on jobs where I play the clarinet, or am I going to put my nose to the grindstone and figure this out and and deal with it? And so I did. You know, I got a good teacher, and I started shedding every day, and, you know, I learned to play the clarinet. And for me, it was worth it to learn to play the clarinet so that I could play on the jobs that I wanted to play on um, and not... You know, I didn't want to and not, not, not sound like a schmuck. So, you know, I don't think there's a, a magic formula for it or anything. I think, I think the most important thing you could do is to decide, is to think about what it is that you do like doing. Like, what kind of playing really does it for you? And for me, like I said earlier, it was I really like playing on ensembles. I like playing with other other really great musicians. I always wanted to play with the people that could really play. There was something about that that was very appealing to me. It still is. That's the thing that really turns my crank. When I show up on something and I'm standing next to some guy and I'm hearing him play and I'm thinking, this guy is the baddest of the bad. This guy is the best at what he's doing right now. And I'm standing right next to him and I'm getting to play with him. To me, that's awesome. And so in order to do that, I needed to be able to play, I needed to be able to double. I needed to be able to play some other instruments to get onto some of these other jobs and to make myself more um, versatile. But what I was saying to you is that there have been times too where I thought would be it would have been interesting if instead of pursuing the flute and the clarinet like I did, if I had pursued the piano to a... Uh, uh, you know, to to get the piano to that same level, if I put that same time into that, I think it would have led me to some other possibilities mm-hmm. and have been involved in some other kinds of music. Um, mm-hmm. um, and for a little while, I, there were th- some things that I was interested in pursuing that I felt like probably wouldn't I wouldn't be able to pursue because I didn't have that ability. Yeah. So, I think you need to think about <clears throat> if you're if you're if you're gonna play. Um, on a professional level, I think you should think about what kinds of musical situations you want to be involved in and what sort of things will help you to be qualified to do, to, to be in those situations. Mm-hmm. So if, for those of us who want to play, um, or not necessarily those of us, but for anyone who wants to play uh, professionally as a studio musician, what skills do you think are the most important? Well, the basics. I mean, there's nothing, it's not, it's not anything unusual. You know, you have to be able to do all the things that, that you learn to do early on, you know, play in tune and read well and understand about ensemble playing. That's, that's a big one. I think there's very few people that, that get that and to be to listen you know to be a good to be able to listen and and figure out what your your role is and the the situation that's going on and to be versatile and know a lot of different styles of music and be able to play a lot of different horns um you know i think i've heard people say before that it's sort of a given that you'll be able to play the music. That's never really a question. You know, anybody that's going to show up on a job like that, almost without exception, is going to be able to play the music that's before them. And 
the other side of it, of course, is the whole, what kind of a person, you know, if you're somebody that's easy to get along with, your whole personality thing, you know, definitely is a factor in it as well. I mean, yeah, I, I did a little bit of playing with um, a big band in college, the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, and I remember sometimes I would feel a little bit restricted because I liked improvising and there weren't, there weren't that many opportunities or when it did come time to improvise, it was a pretty, um, pretty short solo. Um, do you ever feel restricted at all creatively from, you know, as a result of not being able to be featured as a soloist that often? Sure, but I think that's my own, that, that's, that's a silly, yes, I've definitely felt that way, but it's a bad approach to the whole thing, because if I want to be a soloist and do those things, then I should be doing it for myself, I shouldn't be looking for that in these really more commercial endeavors, you know? plenty of space to do that. There's plenty of incredible musicians and, and places to do that. And finding the time can be tricky when I've got a family and I've got work that I need to do and all those things. So it's been something that I've not pursued as much as I would like to. Um, and that's my own, uh, my own battle or whatever. That's my own thing that I need to deal with. But it's not... Um, I'm not precluded from pursuing those things anyway. But if I'm looking for that kind of an outlet in my work, it's not always there. In fact, it's pretty, well, occasionally, but it's pretty rare that I actually have an opportunity where somebody says, yeah, just play whatever you want to play. <laughs> you know? yeah. Just improvise something for us. You know, usually even when I am improvising something, they have some idea about the way it wants to, you know, the kind of thing they're looking for. Oh, this needs to be a or a 30 style thing or you know we're looking for David Sanborn or whatever it is but if they've got an idea about what it is what they want even though I'm improvising yeah well I mean that sounds like it's right up your alley because your dream has always been to play in great ensembles as opposed yeah. to being like one of these guys in New York who only plays in a jazz quartet type of setting is... yeah yeah not to say that that hasn't I mean you know, that I don't pursue that or that I don't, I'm not interested in that. I love doing that. But there's something about that experience of playing on an ensemble that just, I love it. I still do. I, I was talking about with some friends. I remember, you know, I, I went to music camp as a kid and I can remember so clearly playing in the band and be a really good band. And, you know, you'd, you'd be playing and that there'd be a, a release. The band would all make the release together. You'd hear the note ring outside for all this time. It'd be like, that was the bomb. I mean, what else is there that we, you can do that? We've got maybe 50 people, you know, all playing together, doing this thing together, and, and working for this one common goal and being focused at the same time. It's really powerful, I think. Yeah. Well, being in such a diverse um, multitude of musical settings, do you think that affects the way when you do improvise and, and play kind of in small group, small jazz group settings? Do you think that your studio work uh, affects your improvisation? I don't know. I never really thought about that. I'm, I'm sure it does. I, my gut, my initial reaction is to think that it probably affects it more adversely than uh, than positively. But um, 
But maybe not. I mean, it, 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 it's like, you know, keeping the pent up, you, you, you pent, pent up your desire to do it, and then uh, when you get the opportunity to do it, maybe you're a little more, uh, uh, you know, aggressive about it when you get the opportunity. But I, I, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, my, I don't think so. I don't think it probably has that much effect on it. I mean, it does on the sense that what does have an effect on it is that I play my horn in a situation where the very highest caliber of playing is demanded a lot. And so th that you can't beat. I mean, you can't, you can't buy that. There's no other place to get that than, than actually doing it. Uh -huh. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, if you're playing in that, if, because I play in that situation all the time, it, it, it brings my playing up to this level that it, even when I was doing those other things, and I was playing a lot when I was doing those other things. My playing was never at the level that it is right now because I wasn't in that that situation where <laughs> my you know my uh, my career is dependent upon me playing well, and and there's something about that that I think pushes me anyway to playing at a different level. In addition to just the fact that I am playing with these other great musicians and their musicality somehow rubs off on you, you know, you can't help but get better, you hear these people playing, you think, that's the way I want to do that, that guy does that great. Yeah, so. I mean, I, I would think that playing in a bunch of different settings could enrich your playing, and that one day you might be asked to play in a 1930s style, the next day you're playing David Sanborn, like you said, so when it comes time to do your own creative project, you have this huge amount of influences that you might not get if all you were doing was playing in a jazz quartet. Oh yeah, I, yeah, totally, totally true. I mean, it's like playing in the thirty style thing. I think that really helped my playing as an improviser in a lot of ways because it got me away from from thinking so much about about it and just playing more uh, by ear. You know, just trying to to play more melodic things and play more ideas rather than licks. You know what I mean? Um, because you just can't get away with playing, at least for me, I could never make it work and play licks in like an older style playing. I had to kind of just stand up and play more melodic ideas. And I really had to re... I think I learned, fortunately or unfortunately, I don't know, but I really learned from a very cerebral standpoint how to improvise. And it was good for me to back away from that and have a different approach approach to it. Yeah. Well, going back to the doubles a little bit, I was just wondering how you balance your time between practicing all the doubles, since we're not like trombone players and we just have to play our one acts. Um. Well, I mean, at various points I've been, I've had, <laughs> you know, I've had various levels of, of diligence about that. Um, you know, early in my, you know, hang on just one second, John, because I gotta, I gotta blow my nose here. Oh, please. I can tell I can't even, you know, can't breathe. Okay. No, that, now, that sounded great. Sounded yeah, great. Yeah, Let's yeah, try it up a half step. My voice will have some, <clears throat> some amount of resonance. <clears throat> <clears throat> but, um, yeah, when I was younger and I was just learning those instruments, I really 
and I knew I was going to be serious, and I wanted to pursue a career in music. And so I came up with a very exact, my teacher and I came up with a very exact way of how I was going to approach that. I was going to spend 45 minutes on the flute and 20 minutes on the clarinet and then an hour and 45 minutes playing the saxophone or whatever it was. And I did that for a while. Um, and I did that at school a lot. And, I, and then I had a thing where I always tried to practice the flute first thing in the morning because I didn't want my chops to be thrashed. So I'd get up in the morning, make coffee, sit in my room, play my long tones and play my flute. It was a really good period there where I was really on a thing with it. You know, <laughs> it was like really part of my lifestyle to be practicing all the time. And uh, so I practiced the flute and then I'd, and then I'd have a little bit of time for the clarinet uh, in the afternoon. And then I'd, I'd dig into the saxophone. And I always spent more time on the saxophone uh, than I did on the flute and the clarinet. That's just always been, well, almost always been true. So anyway, that was my early approach to it. And then later on, now I find that I do it more in cycles. So I'll go through a clarinet cycle where I'm really working on the clarinet a lot and, and, and I'm not practicing the flute as much. And then I'll go through a point where I'm practicing the flute more and not practicing the clarinet as much. And for me, that ends up having, having to do at least a little bit with what I have coming up on my schedule. So if I know I'm going to be playing a lot of flute on a show, then, I, you know, six weeks or so or whatever it is before that show, if I know that far in advance, hopefully I do, I'll start shedding the flute on a more regular basis so that I, it, it's going to feel good when I get there. And so that's my approach to it. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like a situational thing because yeah. it's just I can imagine it's just really hard to keep an equal level of proficiency on all the different woodwind doubles. Yeah, I don't think it necessarily. I don't think that's that big a deal. And I'll tell you something else too. I take it any day. I take all of that—the doubles and the saxophone and the reeds and all that stuff. I take it any day over having to be a brass player. <laughs> <laughs> They got it bad, man, because they got to do it. They got to, it's a muscle that has to get exercised, and if it doesn't get exercised, they're screwed. So yeah. I'm glad not to have to deal with that on that same level that they do. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of brass players and playing in ensembles and all that kind of thing, when you're playing in a big band, what is it, you know, when you're in the sax section, what is it that you're focusing on the most? What instrument, what part of the band are you most focused on? Uh, well, like the lead trumpet or the lead alto or well it depends I mean that's the whole that's what makes it fun too to play at an ensemble I mean uh, yeah it's great because you really get the opportunity to listen back and hear what's going on and to try to hear where you fit into the ensemble you know so who I'm listening to depends upon who I'm playing with you know, what my part is at that, at that particular moment and it's constantly changing and that's what makes it fun. Um, but as a saxophone player, you're almost always following, um, unless you're playing lead alto, you're, and even then most of the time you're following really because the people in behind you can't hear you. Mm -hmm. so you're always the follower. And you're always you're always stuck with their intonation and their whatever else is going on behind you. You have to match whoever's behind you. Um, 
And that's something that I really didn't get until I was in college. I didn't understand how that worked. I think a lot of young players have... It takes a long time to get to the point where you understand how that works. And I was lucky because I had a really great um, teacher for that, Jim Riggs at North Texas, really busted my chops about that, uh, about fitting in and blending and listening and being part of the, the overall sound instead of sticking out as a, as a personality. You know, there's a place for that, but there's also a place to blend and listen and fit in as opposed to sticking out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I, to me, I was really dug that. So I hope I answered your question. The answer is it always changes and that's the fun of it. You have to listen to see who you're playing with. So, you know, in Gordon's band, he cross writes all the time. So I'm playing with the trombones one minute and then there's an ensemble thing. So I'm listening to the lead trumpet and then I'm playing the sol- soli and I'm listening to Eric and the whole time I'm trying to listen to the bass and play a tune with that and Bernie's fills and whatever it is, you know, you got to listen to the whole, to the whole thing. <laughs> no, I, I know that's one of the big transitions at, you know, moving from student to professional is, um, or it just seems like the more advanced of a musician you are, the less you're listening to yourself and the more you're listening to others. And um, especially in a big band, sometimes it, I know it's, it took me a while to sort out what I should be focusing on, who I should be melding with, because before that I was thinking a lot in terms of just being um, a solo jazz improviser and sort of listening to different things. So it's yeah. interesting to hear your approach. Just yeah, definitely. I love that too. And then you really get to get a feel for the the um, the way a person writes. You know, I think as a writer, you listen to the way you're playing in a band in a different way than you would if you didn't write at all. And, uh, yeah, I'm really in tune with that. And then the really funny thing about that is you get in a point where you always listen for this thing where your role is. And then, uh, this has happened to me many times, then you go and you listen to the playback and you're like, wow, I, I never even knew that part existed because you're so focused on the thing that you're doing. At least for me, I get focused on that one thing and I, I, I don't even realize this other whole thing is going on that I can't, listen to because it's too complicated at that time and I'm too focused on what I'm doing. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing now that I say it, but it definitely happens. Yeah. Well, that, that's cool. I mean, do you have any particular, I mean, I know you've done so many gigs and this might be a hard question to answer, but do you have any one gig that stood out in your mind as just being really memorable? Um, there's been, well, yeah, I mean, there's been so many. I tell you, two come to mind right off the top of my head. The first one is that, you know, um, well, yeah, there's a lot of them. I've been really lucky because as a kid, I had some goals that, um, now in some ways they seem sort of modest to me now because I think I've, 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 I've been really lucky because I've accomplished a lot of those goals. But anyway, I had this. In high school, I had um, a bunch of big band records. Big bands, obviously, always really were interesting to me. And uh, in particular, I remember that I had this um, a Louis Belson record that had a chart on it called The Intimacy of the Blues. I don't know if you know that chart or not. I think... Um, uh, what's his... Uh, it doesn't matter. Anyway, 
uh, I, I can think of who wrote it, but I can't think of his name right now. The guy from The Tonight Show used to fill in for Doc. Anyway, I think he wrote it. But um, it was a great chart, and I had the record, and I wore the record out. And uh, when I first got to town, this is over this is 15 years ago now, I ended up getting called to play to Southern Louis Belson's band. And I'm, I'm playing this concert, and I'm at the concert, and I'm like, you know, I'd literally listened to this record hundreds of times, thousands of times probably, and I'm sitting in the saxophone section, and it's exactly the same guys that are in the saxophone section, except that for me, I'm in the, the section now, and we're playing this chart, and I'm like, I, I, I had to stop thinking about it because it was so incredible to me that I was going I, I to lose it, you know? It was just like, it was the awesomest thing in the world. I was doing exactly what I had always dreamed of, of doing, and that was really neat. And the same thing was really true for Bob Florence's band. You know, I played in that band for a lot of years, and that was a band that I really, you know, I grew up listening to. It was how I learned about that music. And to be doing that, it's just, it was crazy. It still seemed like a dream, you know. And then the other gig that really, that stands out to me was just that um, playing with John Williams for the, uh, at the Disney Concert Hall on the My Fair Lady thing that he did back in the, I think he did it back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. They, they redid that performance, and that was really, really cool to be part of that. I mean, what's, I know you've done sessions, um, you know, film sessions like Toy Story 3 and a bunch of other movies. So when you're doing a session like that where it's, I'm assuming, a full orchestra mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, a conductor and all that, it always seems to me like that would be kind of a high pressure, stiff kind of situation. Is that the, what? But what is it really like being in a session like that? It's a high pressure, stiff situation. No, I. Um, <laughs> it is to a certain extent. Yeah. It. it um, it's not. You know, they say you know ninety music. The music business or playing professionally is ninety five percent boredom and five percent sheer terror. <laughs> wow, and that's pretty accurate because, yeah, well, for, I mean, especially in that situation with a saxophone in your hands, you can always do a lot of damage <laughs> because, you know, I can remember a situation where I was doing that and and. Uh, uh, some the lead alto player, the, the the first saxophonist said to me, "You you got to play that note softer." And I thought he was kidding because I was playing it so soft. But when I heard the playback over the thing, you could hear me over the whole orchestra, and I was playing probably softer than most people practice ever already, and it was still too loud. So it is it's a very delicate thing. It's a different kind of playing. It doesn't. Um, it's something I didn't even, I wasn't really even aware was the way that that needed to be until relatively recently. But it's really made me examine my playing and my setups and things like that so that I can play very softly and still be able to make a phrase and be able to have some nuance within that very soft volume. And then really you have to re-examine the way you articulate and everything. You get, as big band players, you, know, you get used to playing at a much higher volume threshold than what what's involved for being an orchestral player so anyway it, it, but you know I think musicians in general as far as it being stiff I think musicians in general have a pretty um, 
healthy attitude about that. There's always there always seems to be some humor or something that's going on that that lightens the situation a little bit. And part of it too is it is a psychological thing. You have to just know that you're there because you're the right guy. You know, you're the guy that can take care of the take care of business and make it happen. So it's pretty unusual that the music is 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 exceedingly difficult. It is sometimes, but usually it's not that hard technically to play the things um, that I have to play, especially on the saxophone. I certainly have enough technique at this point to be able to play whatever it is that needs to get played most of the time, you know, the majority of the time. So it's not really that. It's mostly about just keeping your head in the game and not psyching yourself out and taking care of business, you know. That's cool. Cool. I, I never, uh, I never knew that. So, um, and then one of the, as we get towards the end, I wanted to ask, um, just go back to a really basic question uh, for beginners out there. Um, would you say that there's a best saxophone to get started on, uh, whether it's alto or tenor? I mean, probably not very, but do you think it makes a difference whether you start out on alto or tenor, or maybe even clarinet, one of the woodwinds? No, I, you know, again, I don't think that there's there's no magic answer for that because there, all the musicians I know have started out on different things. I think you just do what you do what appeals to you. You know, go for what you what if you are if you're fascinated by the sound of the baritone saxophone. Well, then play the baritone saxophone, and it, everything will kind of work itself out. I think from there, but find something that you feel passionate about, and then it'll be a lot easier to pursue pursue it, you know, to, to really be motivated to want to play that instrument. Yeah. As to, well, I really should play the clarinet first because it's very difficult and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, you can pick up, I felt at one point like I wish I had played the clarinet earlier, but now I think it didn't matter really. It was fine. Yeah. So that's my advice anyway. I don't think it, I don't think it matters that much if you start on one thing or another. I mean, of course, there's a physical limitation if you're young and you can't reach the bottom of the baritone. That's that's a different thing. But. Well, cool. I mean, this might be a redundant question because you've answered so much of this, but do you have any parting words for people who are looking to become students or um, amateur players who are looking to take it to the next level and become professionals? Um, yeah, I mean, I think don't, 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 um, don't let somebody else tell you what you can and you can't do. If it's something you want to do, there's absolutely no reason you can't do it. I mean, if you want to play, if you want to play professionally, you need to take a good look at what it is that's going to be involved with doing that, the limitations, and then decide if you're the kind of person that's willing to make the sacrifices that are necessary to do that. And if you can be happy doing that. And if you can't, then don't do it. But I don't think there's a whole lot more to it than that. And you have to, there's a certain amount of, of, of talent involved, I guess. Um, although I felt differently about that at different times. But I think as long as you can assess your own ability, I think that's a really crucial thing to be able to honestly assess 
how well you play at any given moment and what you need to do to improve that, you know, what, what needs to change and to get that going. And, and part of that is like, you get yourself in a, so you get, you get yourself on a, when I would get myself on a job early on, and even now this still is true. I get, I go on, I do a job and I, something comes up and I think, you know, I could have done that better. And then that means I got to go back and practice and work on that thing and improve it. And then if, as long as I'm doing that and I'm in that loop where I'm assessing how I play and making the changes necessary to improve it, then I seem to move forward and things seem to work out. It's kind of a roundabout tangenty kind of answer there, but in a bigger scheme thing than that, too, if, if you can do all those things and be happy, then great. And if you can't, then you should find something else that you, you can do and you can be happy. You know, but it's, uh, I will say that being a sideman is undoubtedly, and being a studio musician, at least here in Los Angeles, but anywhere from what I hear, it's harder than it it ever has been. There's fewer opportunities probably than there ever have been. I mean, it's not like the whole idea of a studio musician probably came up in the 40s or something like that. I mean, obviously after they started recording music, but, (laughs) but, um, it's there's fewer I can say for certain that there are fewer opportunities right now than there than there ever have been. And people have been talking gloom and doom about the music business and this kind of thing for certainly as long as I've been hearing about it. But it's tough. That's not probably a really wouldn't be my choice of ways to 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 go right now to pursue that. I think I'd. Uh, and, and in general, I don't think that's probably a good approach anyway. It's really, it's about playing music and you want to find what kind of music you like to play and pursue that and let the other stuff kind of come up around that. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, uh-huh. no, that's, that's great. That, uh, that makes a lot of sense as well. And um, all right, well, we're pretty much done here, but I wanted to leave everyone with some of your music. So... Um, We've got a quartet version that, of Cantaloupe Island that you wrote and I'm assuming performed on as well. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we'll be leaving you with that. And for more information about you, I will leave a link to your website, which is basically just jeffdriscoll.com. So that'll be in the show notes. So thanks so much, Jeff. Totally appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Jordan. I really appreciate it, man. All right. Have a good one. Okay, you too. Okay. Thank you.
Thank <laughs> you.